But we gather this evening as brothers and sisters in Christ to commemorate that far-off evening when Jesus broke bread and shared wine with his friends. And he did it in order to give them a, a meal which was to be a lasting and a powerful reminder of all that he was to accomplish for them on the cross. And he did it in order to remind his friends of their unity in him. A shared meal of broken bread, a shared meal of poured out wine, which builds community around the truth of the cross where Jesus was broken for every single one of us. A shared meal which we will share together again tonight. For all the disagreements that the church has had over this meal over the years, arguing about whether we should call it at the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion or the Eucharist or the Mass, for, for all of those disagreements, this meal speaks volumes, doesn't it, about who God is and who we are. It tells us that God in Christ loves us so much that he was willing to die for every single one of us. And it tells us that we are welcomed around a table as his friends, as his family. So friends, that's the very heart of it. A shared meal which unites us all in the family of the Saviour. And it's so important, isn't it, this meal? It's so important in making alive to us the reality of Jesus' a sacrifice for us and the reality that we are welcomed into this resurrection family of life. And because it's so important, and on this night of all nights, I think it warrants us having a look at, at some of the details that we find in the Gospels about this meal, because since we all know the story so well, it's only as we look at the details that we're going to be able to learn something new, I think. Um, but friends, the trouble is, it's the details about this meal, which biblical scholars have been struggling with and have been con- confused about for centuries. Would you turn to the reading uh, that we had in, in Mark's Gospel? It's Mark chapter 14, uh, beginning at verse 12. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And there we read, it says, "On On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Uh, So uh, the Last Supper was a Passover. Um, Fine, we knew that, didn't we? But we also know, uh, if you do a bit of reading, that the Jewish Passover begins at sundown, leading into the 15th of Nisan. That's the Jewish month, which is our uh, March and April The Passover begins at sundown, leading in to the 15th of Nisan. And the Passover lambs were slain the day before, on the 14th of Nisan. But notice what Mark does here. Mark says that it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lambs on the first day 
of the Passover feast. But we know that that wasn't the case. The lambs were sacrificed the day before in the Jewish calendar. What Mark says here at first reading is perhaps uh, similar to me saying that on Boxing Day, it's usual to prepare Christmas dinner. It, It just doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? So what's going on there? And then we have another peculiar detail. Look at verse 13. In order to sort out the preparations for the meal, Jesus tells his disciples to follow a man carrying a water jar into a house where there was an upper room. But that's very odd because Jewish men did not carry water jars. In those days, that was the job of the women. So not only do we have Mark saying something akin to the statement that, oh, on Boxing Day we'll prepare Christmas dinner, now we have him recording a detail of domestic work which was simply unheard of, unheard of in Jewish households. So two strange things, confusing Christmas Day with Boxing Day, and then a detail about something that never happened in the first century. Bizarre. And then we come to the strangest detail of all. Uh, Mark clearly records Jesus as eating the Passover meal before his betrayal and trial and execution. John, on the other hand, says something very odd. Uh, Would you turn with me to John chapter 18? John chapter 18, verse 28. I love to hear the rustling of Bible pages in the church. It shows you're, on, shows you're preaching from the text, you see. Um, John 18, 28. And um, so at this point in the story, Jesus and his disciples, have, they've celebrated the Last Supper uh, in John chapters 13 to 17. Jesus has prayed in Gethsemane. He's been arrested. He's been on trial before the high priest. And now John says this in 1828. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Hang on a minute, what's going on now? Jesus and his friends have already eaten this Last Supper uh, Passover meal, but now the Jewish leaders are complaining about, well, they they usually do, don't they, about complaining about cleanliness regulations so that they'll be able to eat the Passover. But the Passover meal has already happened, hasn't it? So is John saying that the Last Supper wasn't a Passover meal? Is he contradicting Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all definitely present the Last Supper as a Passover meal? What on earth is going on? So these three problems. Why does Mark say that the Passover lambs were killed on the same day as the Passover meal, when all good Jews knew that they were killed the day before? Why does Mark tell us about this man carrying a water jar and doing women's work? I'm not being sexist, it's just that's how it was. Uh, And why is there confusion among the Gospels about the nature of the Last Supper, with Mark saying that it uh, was a Passover and John saying, no, the Passover uh, was to be eaten the following day? What on earth is going on? Well, I want to try to answer these questions tonight, and not just for the fun of it, because I like answering questions like this. It's because it will lead us in some surprising and startling directions. 
But to begin answering these questions, I want to uh, ask you another question uh, in order to begin a bit of a detective hunt. On what date did Jesus die? Not, not the day, but on what date did Jesus die? Does anybody know the answer? The date. Don't you find it a bit odd that while we know the exact date of the death of men like Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great or Christopher Columbus, when it comes to the date of the death of Jesus, the man who changed the world more than any other, all the books just have one big question mark. Take Wikipedia, for instance, yet not the most reliable source of, as I found out from writing essays from it, but take Wikipedia. Uh, The article for Jesus, it, it, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, born between 7 and 2 BC, and died between 30 and 36 AD. So this is what we're thinking about his death. Died between 30 and 36 AD. Can we not be more accurate than that? Can we not be more precise than that about the date of the death of the one who stands at the very centre of world history? Well, I think we can. And so we begin something of a detective story uh, which will also help us to answer some of these odd problems that we've already looked at. So uh, here we go. There are certain things that we do already know. All of the Gospels agree that Jesus died on a Friday at Passover time. Yeah, there's uh, disagreements perhaps about whether Jesus died before or after the start of Passover, but the Gospels are unanimous in their witness that Jesus died on a Friday at Passover time. So there we have a start. But in which year did he die? Well, we can narrow down the possibilities. Uh, We know that Jesus died under the rule of Pontius Pilate, who is prefect of Judea. And we know Pilate dates, Josephus, the Roman historian, tell, the, the Jewish historian tells us Pilate dates. He ruled from AD 26 to just before Passover in 37 AD. So this means that Jesus must have died somewhere between AD 26 and AD 36 because we know he died at Passover time under Pontius Pilate. So we're getting somewhere. But we can narrow it down even further because In chapter 3 of Luke, in the first verse, we're told that the ministry of John the Baptist began in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That's when John began his ministry. And we know from Roman records that this date fell somewhere in the period autumn 28 AD to December 29 AD, depending on whether you use a, a Roman or a Jewish calendar. So since Jesus must have died after the start of John the Baptist's ministry, we can safely say that Jesus could not have died in AD 26 or AD 27. So we're narrowing it down. This is the idea. We've got a range of dates. We're trying to narrow it down. So Jesus must have died in the period of 26 to 36 AD. So the gap narrows. Are there any further clues? Well, there are actually. If we look at Paul's letters, uh, we can date the events of his life very accurately because he mentions various Roman governors um, and emperors, and he mentions um, uh, he, he mentions various timings. So, if we use his timings in Galatians, he mentions a period of three years and fourteen years and that sort of stuff. If we use those timings, we can work back 
And we come to this inescapable conclusion that Paul could not have been converted to faith in Jesus after AD 34. So that means that Jesus could not have died in 34 or 35 or 36 because uh, Paul must have come to faith in Jesus after uh, the resurrection because that's what it was all about for Paul. So the gap narrows again. Jesus must have died somewhere in the period AD 28 to 33. But now we ask the question again, are there any further clues? Can we further narrow the gap? Well, yes, we can. You, you might be getting bored at this point, but, um, but keep, keep with it because it'll be worth it. Can we narrow the gap down a bit further? We can. You see, the Gospel of John mentions three Passovers during Jesus' ministry. And because we've already dated John the Baptist's ministry is starting at the earliest autumn, AD 28. And because we know that Jesus' ministry started after John's ministry, we can say for sure that the first Passover of Jesus' ministry couldn't have been any earlier than spring, AD 29. So the second and third Passovers of Jesus' ministry must have been at earliest, AD 30, AD 31. So Jesus could not have died in AD 29 or AD 30. So he must have died somewhere in the period AD 31 to 33. But it's clear from the Gospels that John had actually been preaching for some time before uh, he baptized Jesus. So it's extremely likely that the first Passover of Jesus' ministry wasn't the earliest possible one. It was the next one, uh, which rules out another year. We can narrow the gap even further. So Jesus must have died in either 32 or 33 AD. And that's actually as far as we can go Uh, using clues from the Bible to try to narrow down the possibilities. But actually, I think it's quite startling, isn't it, that just by using a bit of logic and some dates from, uh, you know, when the Roman, various Roman emperors were ruling, we can narrow it down. It's either 32 or 33 AD. But why stop there? We're tantalizingly close to pinning the date down. So the million-dollar question is, is there any other information floating around that... Uh, we can use to find an exact date, either eliminating 32 or 33 AD. Well, there is. And for this, uh, we have to delve into the realms of astrophysics. Um, I, um, I remember having the final supervision of uh, my astrophysics degree in Cambridge, and it was with my supervision partner, and our supervisor said, well, chaps, um, what are you going to do next year? And uh, my friend answered, well, I think I'm going to do a diploma in theology And uh, I answered, well, I'm thinking about ordination, so I'd probably work for a church for a couple of years. And our supervisor was visibly perturbed, put her head in her hands and simply said, oh, God. Um, (laughs) I I don't think she meant it positively. Uh, But she spoke better than she knew because, indeed, the heavens are telling the glory of God. And I suspect uh, that her shock would increase further if she were to find out that another one of her students has recently started ordination training, so that's three. So she's doing quite well, actually. Do pray for the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. God seems to be doing something. Um, Anyway, why am I rambling on about that? Well, at that stage, I didn't realise that um, it would be astrophysics which would provide a decisive clue as to the date of the death of Jesus. You see, we know that Jesus died on a Friday at Passover time, And by that I mean he died on a Friday round about the 14th or 15th of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. Remember, Nisan is the first month of the Jewish calendar. 14, 15 is this, you know, is John right or the synoptics right? 
So a Friday, 14th or 15th of Nisan. Uh, and we know that this must have been in either 32 or 33 AD. So the key question is this. Is there a Friday in 32 or 33 AD which fell near enough the 14th or 15th of Nisan to make sense with what we read uh, in the Gospel chronology? Uh, well, to answer that, uh, we just need to look at the calendar. If you, if you want to know when uh, a particular Friday, what date a particular Friday falls on, you just look in the calendar, don't you? But the trouble is we don't have any records of Jewish calendars at the time of Jesus. But don't worry, because as it turns out, clever astrophysicists, not me, uh, clever astrophysicists, other ones, um, have accurate computational techniques which can effectively spin back all of the equations of motion of the sun and the moon and the earth, and uh, they can reconstruct the Jewish calendar at the time of Jesus. And the reason that we need to do that is because the calendar, the Jewish calendar was based on the moon. It was based on the first sighting of the lunar crescent, low in the western sky. So uh, the, the priests would be probably over the Mount of Olives, where there's not much cloud ever, watching out for the uh, crescent moon. And uh, as soon as they saw the new crescent moon, they'd rush back to Jerusalem and tell everybody and it was a new month. So this is why we need to use astrophysics. We need to spin back the calendar and figure out all of these sightings of the, of the new moon. When was the new crescent moon sighted so that we can figure out when new months were being declared? So in order to reconstruct that calendar, we need to use the power of computational astrophysics to predict the sightings of new crescent moons. So I got on the phone to Professor Sir Colin Humphreys in Cambridge, who did a bit of work with a guy called Graham Waddington, and they've given me some tables of data. And um, these tables of data, they, uh, they look at known sightings of crescent moons, and they predict, they, they fit that, those known sightings They've, they've looked at 1,282 of them, and in every single case, the calculations fit, so pretty good data. Um, we can reconstruct the Jewish calendar using this data uh, for the time of Jesus, and, and here is, I hope this will work, yeah, so he, here is a reconstructed calendar uh, for the two possible years of the crucifixion. Remember we said it's either 32 AD or 33 AD, and these are the Jewish uh, this is a Jewish month with the numbers and the, the days, as in the, the English day names. In, in, in Hebrew, it's just day one, day two, day three, but we give them those names. So remember that Jesus died on a Friday, either just after the Passover meal, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or uh, just before the Passover meal, according to John. And remember that the Passover was to be eaten on the 15th of Nisan. As you can see from the tables, if you look at the AD 32 one, Friday the 12th of Nisan is too early. It doesn't fall, you know, it's far, it doesn't fit with the gospel chronology. It's too early. Friday the 19th of Nisan is far too late. Um, in AD 33, Friday the 21st of Nisan is far too late. But Friday the 14th of Nisan seems to be spot on, doesn't it? Because it fits with what we know that Jesus died on a Friday, either just after or just before Passover. It has to tie in with this 14th or 15th of Nisan. And we find that the date here is just before Passover. Passover would have been the 15th of Nisan. And the date here is Friday the 14th. So using this astrophysical reconstruction of the Jewish calendar, uh, it narrows the search right down. It shows that the only possible date for the crucifixion is Friday, Nisan 14, AD 33. 
um, or on the Julian calendar, which is used for dates before 1582. It translates to Friday, uh, April the 3rd, AD 33. And then Mark tells us in his gospel in chapter 15 that Jesus died at three o'clock in the afternoon. So we can really narrow it uh, right down at pinpoint accuracy. When did Jesus die? All the evidence fits one and only one date, Friday, 3rd of April, AD 33, at 3 p.m. And the interesting thing is this, it begins to solve all of those thorny problems that we had right at the beginning. Because if Jesus died on Friday, Nisan 14, AD 33, he did indeed die before the Passover meal was due to be celebrated as indicated by John. So we have to say that John is right. And biblical scholars, as I said, have been debating this for centuries, but because of these reconstructions, John is right. But does that mean that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are wrong in presenting Jesus' Last Supper as a Passover meal? Um, Well, I'm an evangelical, so of course they're not wrong, because the Bible is true, isn't it? Um, Well, I don't think they're wrong. Um, You see, Jews hold their Passover meals by a strict calendar and are highly unlikely to mistake a meal as being a Passover meal if it wasn't. They know exactly what they're doing when they're celebrating Passover. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke wouldn't have uh, mistaken this meal that Jesus held as a Passover if it wasn't. So what on earth is going on? Uh, Well, here is an insight. Could it be, could it be that Jesus was using a different calendar Uh, to the official Jewish calendar. Just as Orthodox churches uh, celebrate Easter according to the Julian calendar, and we Protestants, and along with the Catholics, uh, celebrate it according to the Gregorian calendar, could it be that a similar situation existed in first century Palestine at the time of Jesus concerning Passover celebrations? Could Jesus have used a different calendar? Well, yes, he could, because you see the official Jewish calendar with the names of the months like Nisan, well, that's related to the Babylonian names. And uh, and in that calendar, the day begins at sundown with the new months beginning when the first sighting of the crescent moon is observed. And that calendar was inherited from the Babylonians when the Jews were in exile in Babylon. That's the official calendar that they picked up and they brought it back to Jerusalem with them. When the ruling class were carted off to Babylon, they picked up the new calendar and brought it back with them uh, when Cyrus let them return. So let's call that the post-exilic calendar. It's a calendar mentioned in Leviticus and Numbers. And according to that calendar, Passover is celebrated on the 15th of Nisan. But there is another calendar. Would you turn with me to Exodus 12? So that's the second book of the Bible, Exodus 12 and verse 1. Don't worry, all this is going somewhere, by the way. It's it's like one of those detective things when you want to to read the last page, but don't, because it'll spoil it. But, okay, Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. There it says this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, so that's key, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So it seems that what the Lord was saying to Moses and Aaron is this, he says, you're in Egypt and you're 
using the Egyptian calendar, because you're in Egypt. Uh, But I'm about to bring you out of Egypt so that I want you to make this month, this month, when I'm bringing you out of Egypt, the first month of your year. So it's a call to modify the Egyptian calendar by just renaming the first month. And then in Exodus 13, verse 4, it says, Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. And Aviv means, literally means the ripening of the ears of barley. It's, a, it's just a pre-exilic name for the month of Nisan. That's when the barley ripens in Nisan, in Aviv, the same month. So, so to mark the very day of the exodus from Egypt, God called Moses to declare that particular Egyptian month to be the first month of this Jewish calendar, the pre-exilic Jewish calendar. But the interesting thing is this, the pre-exilic calendar would have been based on the Egyptian calendar in that each new month was declared not with the sighting of the new crescent moon, but with the first day on which you couldn't see the old crescent moon. And in the Egyptian calendar, the day also ran from sunrise to sunrise rather than sunset to sunset. And uh, we're also told in this calendar that the Passover lamb was to be eaten on the 14th of Aviv or, or Nisan. And that tell, we, we, we see that in Exodus 12, 6 to 8, rather than eating it on the 15th of Nisan. So with all of this information, we can again use astrophysics to reconstruct that calendar as well uh, and see what was going on at the time of Jesus in that calendar. So uh, Colin Humphreys and Graham Waddington have done some more work And um, this is what they come up with. So this is a pre-exilic calendar at the time of Jesus. And as we look at it, we come to a startling conclusion. If Jesus used this calendar to celebrate his Passover, Last Supper, then the meal would have been on the Wednesday of Holy Week, because Passover in this calendar was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan. That's Wednesday of Holy Week. On, on Wednesday, we see we, we have the Last Supper Passover. Actually, let's just add some more. Um, let's just add some more details of Holy Week so we get the idea. On Wednesday, we have the Last Supper Passover, uh, Gethsemane, and the arrest. On Thursday, we have the trials before the high priests, the trial before the Sanhedrin, and then Jesus being put in prison, as, as Nick was talking about. On Friday, we have another little trial in the morning before the Sanhedrin to confirm the decision, then the trial before Pilate, the crucifixion, and then the official Jewish Passover mentioned by John. Saturday was a Sabbath, then Sunday, Resurrection Day. And the wonderful thing is that this new reconstruction solves all of the problems that we began with. It answers the question as to why Mark said that the lambs were slain on the same day as a Passover meal, because in the pre-exilic calendar, Nisan 14 was a sunrise to sunrise day, which took in the slaying of the lambs in the afternoon and the meal after sunset. So in the official Jewish calendar, the day begin, the new day begins at sunset, but in the older calendar, Nisan 14 takes in all of that. So as Mark says, the Passover lambs are sacrificed on the same day as the Passover meal. And it also explains, um, 
why John mentions a Passover meal uh, to be celebrated after the death of Jesus, because while Jesus was using the pre-exilic calendar, John was commenting on the official calendar. And it also explains a further problem, which I haven't mentioned, uh, which is the fact that as you read the Bible, as you read the gospel accounts, you find that it's impossible to fit in all of the events that the gospel writers mention between Thursday evening and Friday crucifixion time. It's impossible to fit all of those events. Literally, scholars have have charged around Jerusalem with stopwatchers, literally, trying to figure out whether you can fit in um, uh, singing a hymn, going to the Mount of Olives, praying in Gethsemane for at least a couple of hours, uh, the arrest, being carted off back to the high priest's house, a trial before Annas, a trial before Caiaphas, a trial before Herod, a trial before Pilate, all all of it. You, You just can't fit it in. It's impossible. But this explains what was going on. It enables us to fit it in because the Last Supper was on Wednesday evening, not Thursday. So yeah, the church has assumed wrong for the past 2,000 years. Um, The the, the extra space between the Last Supper and the crucifixion also means that, um, do you remember that incident in the Gospels where it says many false witnesses came at the trials of Jesus, many false witnesses claim. The gospel writers never say, oh, by the way, the trials were illegal. They just say people were lying. Um, because you see, in the Mishnah, which is a Jewish book of rules, you're not allowed to try somebody at night. And if you're going to find somebody guilty of uh, a capital offense, so you want to punish somebody by execution, you have to sleep on the decision. You're not allowed to just do it. You've got to sleep on it, then meet the following morning to confirm the decision. Well, if the Last Supper was Wednesday evening, they could have had the initial trials on Thursday, then meet again to confirm it on Friday morning, and then the crucifixion would have been uh, on Friday. So it it, it sort of solves these problems. But um, what about this problem of the man carrying the water jar? What's that about doing work that only women would do in the first century well, um, in 1947, they, descri- they discovered some scrolls at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it, they tell us that there was a Jewish sect called the Essenes. And um, some of those lived at Qumran in the desert. And they used the pre-exilic calendar, this new one that we've come up with. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls also say that at the time of Jesus, there was an Essene community in Jerusalem, And the thing about Essenes was that uh, they were celibate. So they would have had to have done women's work. uh, Like, (laughs) as I said, I'm not being sexist. But it's just that the the Essenes were celibate, so they would have had to do women's work like carrying water jars. So it seems very likely that Jesus found it highly convenient to celebrate his Last Supper Passover meal by holding it in an Essene community house that were already using that calendar. So it made it really convenient. So this new reconstruction of Holy Week solves all of the solutions uh, which biblical scholars have have struggled with over the past few centuries. Um, uh, Yes, it throws up this bizarre result that the Last Supper was on a Wednesday evening of Holy Week, but that's all right because it fits with the biblical evidence and the Bible doesn't say anywhere that the Last Supper was on Thursday. Now, I hope you have survived um, all of that, but basically it just solves some of those problems. Now, um, 
as this uh, new way of understanding things solves some problems, it also opens up some really powerful symbolism, uh, which really is at the heart of what I want to say tonight. So that was kind of the introduction, but don't worry, this bit's going to be shorter. Um, now, well, it's a Baptist church, isn't it? You've got to get, you know, I've not even started preaching yet. That's just a, that's just a science, you know. Um, you see, if, if Jesus died at 3 p.m. Nissan 14 in the official Jewish calendar, if he died at that time, Nissan 14 in the official Jewish calendar, then he died at precisely the time when most of the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the Jerusalem temple. We, we know that from, uh, as I said, very Jewish sources. That's the time when it was between three and five. And so Jesus died at exactly the time when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed in the Jerusalem temple. And when Jesus, well, if he died on the 14th of Nisan, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's the 16th of Nisan. When Jesus rose from the dead on the 16th of Nisan in the official Jewish calendar. He rose from the dead on precisely the day when the new sheaves of barley were being waved before God in the temple at the festival of first fruits. So no wonder that St. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. Christ has raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So St. Paul agrees uh, with this new reconstruction of Holy Week, and and he says this, Jesus is our Passover lamb, the one who covers us with his blood, that we might be brought out of slavery. And Jesus is our first fruits offering the risen one whose resurrection guarantees that the rest of the harvest will be brought in the resurrection harvest of all those who are connected to Jesus by faith. Is that you? Are you connected to Jesus by faith? If you are, that's good news because Jesus is the first fruits that guarantees the resurrection of all the rest of us. So, Friends, this new reconstruction of Holy Week absolutely fits with Paul's theology. And it it slaps us in the face with the fact that Jesus is this Passover lamb who wins freedom for us. And that Jesus is this first fruit offering whose resurrection means that one day, one day, you and I will be raised to resurrection life if we put our trust in in Jesus. So that's Paul, but what about Peter? 
Well, at Pentecost, if you remember Pentecost, seven weeks after Passover, Peter and the gang, they were back in Jerusalem seven weeks later at Pentecost, and Peter stood up in Jerusalem, and he preached to the crowds. And um, if you look at Acts 2, uh, verse 14 and following, you, you can see Peter's sermon. Acts 2, 14 and, and following. And this is what Peter said about the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And also he's commenting about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He says this, Acts 2, verse 14. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. So remember, he's talking about the spirit, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He says, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, because the pubs aren't open yet. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show you wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What Peter is saying here um, might be more significant than than you thought in the past. Firstly, he's saying that Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled. People have been filled with the Spirit, not drunk on wine, but drunk with the Holy Spirit. But what about the rest of Joel's prophecy? If Peter is saying, look at this outpouring of the Spirit, I'll tell you what it means. It's a fulfillment of Joel. What about all the other things that Joel mentions? What about uh, the sun being turned to darkness? Well, the Gospels say something interesting, and I'll I'll give you Luke's poignant version of it. In in chapter 23 of Luke, It had come to noon on Good Friday, and Luke says this. He says, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. Now, astronomical calculations show there wasn't an eclipse of the sun at that time. So this event is is likely, we don't know for sure, is likely to have been one of those famous dust storms that can blow up in the Middle East. There are records of people being in the Middle East during a dust storm, and you can't see your hand in front of your face. So it could have been that. But more significant than what caused it is Peter's take on it. He's effectively saying, you remember how uh, the sun stopped shining when Jesus died? Well, that fulfills Joel's prophecy. You remember how the sun stopped shining when Jesus died? Well, that fulfills Joel's prophecy. Okay, but what about this comment about the moon being turned to blood? Well, here is what the moon... um, looks like when it's eclipsed, uh, because red light from the sun is refracted through the Earth's atmosphere, and it bounces off the moon, and it looks red. And this one uh, was taken in 1982 uh, uh, in Liverpool, from, from Liverpool. But even, and this is a full eclipse, but even partial eclipses of the moon can uh, cause it to go a blood-red color. So the million-dollar question is this, were there any lunar eclipses visible from Jerusalem in the years surrounding the death of Jesus? Well, again, uh, 
clever people, Colin Humphreys, Graham Waddington, they've done the calculations and the answer is yes. Only one. And do you know what day it was? Friday, the 3rd of April, AD 33. And this is their computer simulation of what it would have looked like as uh, the uh, partially eclipsed and red-looking moon rose over the Mount of Olives at 6.20 p.m. That's what it would have looked like. So on the day that Jesus died, as all Jerusalem was watching for the rising of the full paschal moon to signal the start of Passover, the moon did indeed rise, but it rose partially eclipsed, blood-red. And so what Peter was saying is this. You remember how the moon looked blood red after Jesus died. Well, that fulfills Joel's prophecy as well. Remember, Joel said the moon will turn to blood. That, this, that what they saw after Jesus died fulfills Joel's prophecy. That's part of Peter's argument. But now comes a punchline because Peter went on to say that these signs in the heavens happened before what Joel described as the great and glorious day of the Lord. And in Peter's mind, that great and glorious day can only be one day, Resurrection Day. Isn't Resurrection Day the great and glorious day of the Lord? And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, yep, Joel prophesied this stuff about the great and glorious day of the Lord, but it's happened Jesus is risen from the dead, and the signs in the heavens above prove it. So Peter, uh, on that first Pentecost Sunday, was preaching a stonking sermon, wasn't he? He was saying that uh, Joel spoke of the day of the Lord. Well, friends, it's here. With the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it's arrived. The day is today. That's what Peter was saying. The day is today. The great and glorious day of the Lord, resurrection day. But Joel knew, and Peter knew, and uh, no doubt the crowds knew as well, that this term, the day of the Lord, was also intended to speak of the judgment of God and the renewal of all things, the beginning of the new creation, at the end of time. That's what the day of the Lord means in the Old Testament. It's judgment a new creation at the end of time. So what Peter was really doing was this. He was using Joel's prophecy. He was using Joel's prophecy and these astronomical events that the people saw which surrounded the death of Jesus. And his claim was this, a startling claim. Peter was saying, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, the new creation that was expected at the end of time, has begun to burst in to the middle of history. The new creation that was expected at the end of time, says Peter, has begun to burst in to the middle of history. The death and resurrection of Jesus is about the beginning of the new creation. And you and I can be part of that new creation if we put our faith in Christ. 
But what about the Last Supper? Where does that fit into this idea about new creation? Well, uh, now I come to the punchline, and it's this. Because Jesus chose to celebrate the Last Supper as a Passover meal, using that pre-exilic calendar that we've been talking about, he was actually choosing to celebrate his Last Supper on a very uh, special anniversary. And it's the exact anniversary of the first ever Passover meal, when Moses led the Jews out of captivity in Egypt towards the freedom of the promised land. That's what the calendar was all about. God said to Moses, yeah, you're using the Egyptian calendar, change the month to remember uh, this wonderful event. And so Jesus uses that same calendar and he celebrates his last supper on the very anniversary of the first Passover meal at the Exodus when Moses led them out of Egypt towards freedom in the promised land. So quite simply, what Jesus was doing was presenting himself as the new Moses. By using this calendar, this Egyptian, this pre-exilic calendar, Jesus was claiming to be the new Moses leading a new Exodus, not to the promised land, but to the promised new creation, that new creation that people like Joel had been dreaming about centuries before. Jesus, by celebrating his Last Supper on that day, was saying, I'm the new Moses, I'm leading you in a new exodus, but not to a piece of land, but to a new creation. And that is the only point I really want to make. Um, Yes, the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, or Eucharist, or Mass, or forget it, whatever you want to call it. Um, Yes, it's a remembrance of Jesus, a saving sacrifice for each one of us, and a reminder that we're welcome to sit around his table as his family. That's true. But this truth carries deeper riches still, because Jesus' Passover meal, and our remembrance of it tonight, because we're going to share Uh, bread and wine tonight. Jesus' Passover meal and our remembrance of it tonight makes some glorious declarations. It declares Jesus to be the true Passover lamb under whose blood we can find a safe way home. It declares the risen Jesus to be the first, to, to be the first fruits, the true first fruits offering whose resurrection guarantees your resurrection and my resurrection in the future, if we trust him for it. And wonderfully, it declares Jesus to be this new Moses figure, the true Moses, the new Moses, the one who, uh, because of his death, death and resurrection, is leading you and me, his people, on the exodus to resurrection life in the glorious, promised, new creation. Uh, well, I've said a lot tonight. But let me give you the application and challenge in two sentences. You've always got to have an application, haven't you? But, but let me give it to you in, in two sentences. So, uh, the declaration, Jesus is leading the exodus to the new creation. That's the point. Jesus is leading the exodus to the new creation. And the application or the challenge Will you trust him? Will you join him? Will you sit at his table and be equipped for that journey? Will you allow 
Jesus to equip you for this wonderful journey, renewal, transformation, heading towards the new creation. Thanks be to God for his most inexpressible gift, which he has given to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.